0: Praise be Jesus Christ, and peace be with you. Ah, it is a joy to be speaking to you again on this podcast, and uh, I apologize that it's been almost a month since the last episode that I recorded. Um, I am speaking to you again now from Menlo Park, California. In fact, I'm back here on the grounds of St. Patrick's Seminary. It is a beautiful day. Uh... Yeah, very mild. In fact, we had a little bit of rain earlier, which was exciting. Uh, (laughs) I texted my friend, Oregon comes to California. We've had a a little bit of a heat wave, I guess, recently. At least it's been warm, and so it it was a relief to have a cooler, cloudier day, and even a little bit of surprise rainfall. That was nice. I'm out taking a bit of a walk at the moment. I am two weeks in to the um, uh, summer seminarian retreat put on by the St. John Paul II Healing Center, you might remember, in Tallahassee, which this year, for the first and perhaps hopefully only time, (laughs) is being done as an online virtual retreat. And so I'm participating here from the safety of our uh, cloistered enclave on the seminary grounds in Menlo Park. Uh, there's around 10 of us participating from all over the, the U.S. Um, the retreat team, of course, is down in Florida. And so, uh, yeah, it's been amazing, guys. It's, this, this month has been such a, a blessing already. And it's crazy that the Lord still has more gifts to give. You know, the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be going deeper um, with a little bit more one-on-one work. Uh, But there's already been just so much that the Lord has already given to me and to my brothers on the retreat. A couple of my classmates from St. Patrick's Seminary are actually on the retreat with me, although they're not here. They're uh, in their own diocese, in their own parishes, participating online as well. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been an incredible grace just to be able to share this journey with them as well as with other brothers from around the country who I've never met, met before, <laughs> but uh, I've been getting to know them through our Zoom calls. Uh, yeah, so praise God. I will uh, hopefully be able to share some more graces with you over time uh, as I continue to receive, yeah, more and more healing, more and more uh, beautiful gifts from the Lord. Um, Yeah, he's so good to us. And uh, in the theology segment today, I'm going to share with you uh, one of the fruits of the five-day silent retreat, which we just completed. So as part of the overall John Paul II healing retreat, which is a month-long program, each week has its own structure. The first week is known as Restoring the Glory. The second week is an Ignatian-style five-day silent retreat. And then week three, which we're about to begin on Monday, is called Healing the Whole Person. Uh, Week four, I don't know yet what it is. (laughs) I'll let you know next week. Um, And yeah, so we've just finished the five-day silent portion of the overall month-long retreat. Uh, And I'm looking forward to sharing with you one of the graces the Lord was was uh, giving to me. Um, I get the feeling that some people think that a retreat is like a, a vacation. <laughs> and I would like to just disabuse you of that notion, if you think that. Um, yeah, in, in, at least in the way that uh, Catholics think about a retreat, I don't know about other traditions, the, what the differences might be, but for us as Catholics, a retreat is really a time um, for the Lord to do intense work in your hearts and in your soul and um, and that's I really mean that like that's not just uh, kind of a pat saying or a platitude um, I often think about this line from St. Therese you know St. Therese for a a, a large portion of her life in the convent, which was not particularly long, but while she was in religious life, she would often fall asleep while making her times of adoration before the Lord. And uh, she's a great teacher for us all in that regard because she was never distressed by falling asleep in prayer. She uh, would sometimes say that she was just a little child curling up on her daddy's lap, which is a beautiful way to think about just resting in the Lord in our times of, uh, of, of intimacy with him. But there's also this image from, I, I think it is from Therese, and if not, it's from Abbot Columba Marmion, who wrote about her life and had a spirituality very much inspired by Therese. But any, one of those two, at any rate, said, the, the Lord, the divine physician, sometimes needs to put his patients to sleep in order to be able to do his deepest work in our souls. And I think that's an apt metaphor for a time of retreat. Um, it, yeah, <laughs> putting the patient to sleep. It's in the sense of taking us away from our normal routine, taking us away from the cares of the outside world in a certain way, but not as a, as a withdrawal for its own sake, and not simply to get away and have some time to recuperate. The whole point is that God brings the soul, I should perhaps say He brings the whole person, closer to Himself and further from the world so that the person has fewer distractions and can enter into the infinite solitude of his or her own interior life, of his or her own soul. Where the Lord has to do his deepest work. You know, uh, our, our actions and our reactions and our patterns of behavior and our habits and these type of things, um, those are the external attributes, <laughs> for lack of a better word, the external acts that we see both in our own lives and the lives of others but they all proceed from a deep interior source. So a time of retreat is a time to go back to the source, to go deep, to go, you know, ad fontes, as some theologians are fond of saying, to go to the the fonts. Yeah, to go to the fonts of our own life. And a a major philosophy of the John Paul II Healing Institute is that uh, oftentimes as Christians in the church, We can become focused on what what they call sin management, (laughs) which which I like. We could also call it behavior management, or perhaps in the language of positive uh, psychology, behavior modification, right? We notice in ourselves actions or habits that we want to change. Um, Yeah, perhaps patterns of impatience with others, or... Patterns of un uh, lack. What do I say? Lack of charity, uh, being uncharitable, Wh- isolation, whatever it might be, right? And we want to change these things about ourselves, but so often we find that we are powerless in the face of our own behavior. Well, that's because we're focusing on the behavior, which precisely, which proceeds from a deeper place. We need to be able to go to the deep places with the Lord, who invites us first to come there. He says, duke in altum, set out into the deep to St. Peter. So he leads us into those deep places where he can bring about real healing. You know, the disordered uh, actions and behaviors of our lives are very often rooted in deep trauma. And so a time of retreat like this, especially a healing retreat like this one is intended to be uh, it's not a vacation. <laughs> it's not a time to kick back and and uh, and relax, although it it does it is a time of rest, but it's also a time of intense activity. and that's the best way I can describe it. If you've never been on a retreat, you probably won't understand. <laughs> and if you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So yeah. It's ongoing. I'm about halfway through. The Lord's been doing incredible, incredible things. So thank you, f- thank you very much for your prayers. Um, and this coming week on Monday, we're going to be starting out. As I said, it's a more intense phase. And as a consequence, we'll be spending more time together in the online sessions, uh, which are all keyed into Eastern Time Zone, because that's where the retreat team is. So for them, they're starting the morning session at 10 a.m., For us, in California, that's 7 (laughs) a.m. So that's going to be a big shift. Um, I've been blessed to go to daily mass every day since I got here at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's a wonderful Latin mass in the Dominican Rite, celebrated by my formation director. And on Monday, we'll be moving it back to 6.30 a.m. to accommodate the retreat. Uh, so that's very gracious of him to b- move it back. <laughs> and um, I'm just praying that the Lord will give me the grace to, uh, to wake up in time to go to that Mass every day. Uh, continue to serve, receive him in the Eucharist. It's been such a blessing to be, uh, to be able to go to daily Mass again and receive the Lord again day after day. He really strengthens us by his, his self-gift in the sacraments. That's been a beautiful grace during these weeks as well. Uh, What else? Oh yeah, yesterday I began uh, something new that I'm trying, a little experiment. We have right now, so these few days where I'm recording right now, we have a little bit of a break from the retreat. Uh, The silent retreat ended Wednesday and we're getting back in on Monday. So for these four days, we just kind of have a little time to unwind, let the pressure off. And yesterday night, I decided to live stream Sung Vespers, according to the Liturgy of the Hours, on Instagram Live. And it went very well. I was surprised. Um, (laughs) It was, uh, as you know, the Feast of Corpus Christi, the Body and Blood of Christ. Beautiful, solemn feast. And so, I uh, live streamed from our little chapel here, and uh, just sang... Vespers took about half an hour. We concluded with uh, the Angelus. And I think about, if I'm not mistaken, 12 people were watching live. And then after I concluded it, of course, it, it posts to Instagram and people can go back and watch it. And something like 50 people have gone back and watched it uh, since yesterday, which is interesting. You wouldn't think that that. Uh, You wouldn't think that people would go back and watch a prayer service from the previous day. At least I wouldn't necessarily think that. But a lot of people apparently have, so that's awesome. Um, And I don't know if that'll keep up or if it was just maybe interest in seeing what I was doing for this this new thing. Uh, But anyway, I've decided for the next couple of days, I'll keep doing this. So tonight, uh, Friday, and then tomorrow, Saturday, and then uh, for second Vespers of Sunday. I will be live streaming these 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time on Instagram Live. So if you are on Instagram, you can uh, log in and follow me. And uh, my name on Instagram is Matthew Knight Arena. <laughs> All one word, Matthew Knight Arena. Like the arena in yeah, Eugene, Oregon, at University of Oregon. Which is, it's. I picked it as an ironic name. Because <laughs> they were building that arena when I was in high school. And... Uh, I had a teacher and some classmates who would call me Matthew Knight Arena because that was in the news, whatever. And so I picked that as my Instagram name, like, uh, as a joke. Now I get tagged in all these posts by people who go to the Matthew Knight Arena. (laughs) So I'm constantly getting these posts coming up on my page of, like, people posing with the big Oregon Ducks mascot and stuff like that. (sighs) Whatever. This reminds me also of some big news I have to share with you. Um, I mentioned several podcasts ago that I was going to be going to a certain parish in Portland for my pastoral year, and I apparently that was a little premature because my assignment has now changed. Some of you I've shared this with already, um, but as far as I am aware, <laughs> it's now confirmed and it's solid. Um, I've been in on an email loop with my vocation director, and the pastor of this parish and so it's all I guess it's all out in the open and so I'm really very excited to announce that I will be starting at St. Mary's Parish in Eugene Oregon uh, either at the end of August beginning of September somewhere in there and I will be doing my pastoral year there now I was excited to go to Portland Uh, I really was but I do think this will be better for several reasons. Uh, For one, it's closer to my family, which is awesome. Eugene's only about an hour away from where my family lives, down in Roseburg. So I'll be within easy driving distance. They can come up and visit. (laughs) I can go back down to see them on my days off, which will be very nice. Um, Yeah, it'll also be good just to have the opportunity to minister down in that region, which I've never done before. Um I've been mostly in Portland for ministry assignments. I was on the Oregon coast for one summer, you might remember, down in Coos Bay. And Eugene, you know, it's uh it's not as it's not a tiny town, but it's not a big city particularly. And so it's it's a college town, you know. So I think that'll be a nice kind of uh, balance, It kind of medium maybe (laughs) between my other experiences and namely portland and coos bay eugene's kind of falls in the middle so that's nice the parish has got a hispanic community which i'm looking forward to working with um one of the recommendations of the seminary for me was that i should spend my pastoral year in a parish with a sizable hispanic community so i can keep working on spanish and Working with them, you know, with whatever whatever the parish might be doing, I'll be able to participate in. So I'm looking forward to that. And that's one part of the reason I think Father Jeff wanted to move me to Eugene. This other parish where I was going to go in Portland, I don't believe had a Hispanic community present there. So this will be better in that regard, too. And another nice thing is at St Mary's there's two priests living together in community. Uh one of whom I know, the other one I have met in passing, don't know him real well, but I'm looking forward uh to getting to know him. And I I I am excited at the prospect of living in a, a a bit of a community at least. Even only three of us. <laughs> Still uh that, that's that's nice. It's good to be uh good to have a little bit of a community around you. So that's good. That's all very good. Um, Yeah, so I'll just be down here in Menlo Park for the next couple of weeks. I'll be back up in Roseburg in July and August, and then sometime August or early September, I'll be going up to Eugene to begin the pastoral year. Hello. Some of our uh, groundskeepers are out here working in the, the the back paths in kind of our undeveloped wooded area of the campus where I'm walking around. So they They have these golf carts. <laughs> that They drive around everywhere. That's pretty funny. Uh, yes. So those are the major updates in my life. Um, yeah. And uh, once again, I just asked, please please keep praying for me during these weeks of the retreat. Um, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, the Lord's doing great things for my sake and uh, ultimately for the sake of the people that I'm one day going to serve. You know, I often think about uh, a priest of priest friend of mine in Portland. Um, some years ago, he went on this summer program, which I'm now participating in. And I'll, I never forget... What he said to me afterwards. He said, when he was ordained, he became a parochial vicar, as most of us will do (laughs) for at least a couple of years. It's basically an assistant priest in a parish serving under the pastor, and he loved it. He said, I would have been happy being a parochial vicar for the rest of my life because he got to celebrate masses and hear confessions and give people the sacraments, preach, teach, accompany his people, give spiritual direction, etc. All of it. But he wasn't responsible for them. (laughs) Ultimately, because he wasn't the pastor. And he wasn't making the final decisions on anything. And that was a comfortable place to be. Well, of course, one year, he was named as pastor. And as soon as that decision came, he said he felt such an overwhelming fear in his heart um, of the prospect, yeah, of taking on the responsibility for the spiritual lives and well-being of all the parishioners in this parish, and it was a sizable parish too. And he said he just realized he had this—he had this deep fear of fatherhood, spiritual fatherhood, um, you know, which as a parochial vicar hadn't really kicked in, because although he was called father and certainly was exercising uh, spiritual fatherhood and living into that reality, he wasn't the pater familias <laughs> of the whole parish. He wasn't the, the head, if you will. And so it was at that moment um, that a lot of his own woundedness and weakness and fear were coming to the fore. And he decided to go on this retreat And this is what has always stuck with me. He said, after he came, he realized one thing on the retreat. Probably (laughs) innumerable things, (laughs) certainly. But this is what he shared. If the people of the parish see his weakness, who will they see is strong? Christ. The Lord. See, he was part of his his fear about stepping up to be the spiritual father, the pastor of the parish, uh, was of um, getting it wrong, <laughs> making mistakes, uh, and and uh, like most of us, he knew his own weakness all too well. But but what he realized on the retreat was, yeah, if I if I show the people, if I allow them to see my own weakness, my own vulnerability, who are they going to see as strong? The more that they know that I'm weak, the more they will know that the Lord is strong, that Christ is good, and that he loves mankind. That's always spoken so deeply to my heart. And I think that's true. I'm going to speak more about well, in this kind of a vein in a little bit in the theology segment. Um... So just tuck that one away. But yeah, that's uh, in a way that describes what the Lord's doing for me in this retreat too. Um, and this is, uh, yeah, this is part of the redemptive journey of the Christian life where we have to go into our own brokenness and come to terms with it and come to, to acknowledge it. That's self-awareness. Come to accept it, self-acceptance. Uh, surrender it to the Lord. And by inviting the Lord into those deep places, then we're able to make a self-gift of ourselves, which is really the essence of fatherhood, of spiritual parenthood, <laughs> and of spiritual maturity, like St. Paul says, to grow up into the fullness of the maturity, the manhood of Christ. Uh, so that's enough about that. Again, please just keep, keep the prayers coming, and we're trading prayers. I pray for all of you who listen to this podcast. I pray that the Lord will lead you into all truth by the gift of the spirit of truth, and that uh, he will continue to conform all of your hearts to his own heart, which is most beautiful, most gentle and kind, the sacred heart of our Lord. I have some thoughts to share with you about a wonderful Shakespearean play, which I finished reading this week, so let's move over to the Shakespeare segment. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. This week I finished reading Pericles, Prince of Tyre. It's one of Shakespeare's lesser-known works. In fact, uh, it seems almost certain that the first two acts were not written by Shakespeare himself. Um, so he contributed about 60% of the play. <laughs> One commentary I was reading said that scholars are, are mostly unanimous on the, on the conclusion that the first two acts could not have been written by Shakespeare, simply on the grounds that they are unreasonably bad. <laughs> and there's, I have to say, I can see where they're coming from. Now, I loved this play, Pericles. Honestly, this is one of my favorite plays I think we've read yet in the Shakespeare 2020 project. Uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful play. (laughs) And if you have not read it, I highly recommend it. The thing about Pericles is it practically every single page, this this is what I told my grandmother, who's, as you know, reading along with these plays with me throughout the year. I said, just about every single page when you flip to the next one in Pericles, there's something to make you say, WHAT?! (laughs) It is completely chock-full of outrageous plot twists, and these deus ex machina, or machina? All of a sudden, I can't remember how we pronounce that in English. I think it's deus ex machina, type of, uh, you know, divine interventions and twists of fate. So here's the basic outline of the plot. This is the summary, okay? You have Pericles, who is the king of, of, really, the prince of Tyre, as the title says. He is looking for a wife, and so he goes off um, to visit Antiochus. I think I've got the names right. Um, Whose daughter is eligible, an eligible bachelorette. But in order to win her hand, he has to solve a riddle. And so far, there have been many suitors who have come, and if they fail to solve the riddle, they die. The king cuts their heads off. So Pericles solves the riddle, but he's horrified by what he finds out, because the riddle, which is ridiculously easy to solve, uh, by the way, (laughs) the riddle reveals that the king is in an incestuous relationship with his daughter. So Pericles is... he sort of cunningly gets out of that situation. Because um, it's a catch-22, you see. If, if uh, you fail to solve the riddle, you die. But if you solve the riddle, and you speak the king's crimes out loud, then certainly you'll die. So, basically, you're going to die. Well, Pericles gets away. He uh, cunningly avoids, you know, saying aloud what the king has done, and then he escapes that island. But then he has to go into hiding. So he flees uh, away from his kingdom. He leaves his loyal lieutenant, second in command, in charge. And he embarks on a voyage by sea to another kingdom where he can hide out for a while. And he travels for some time. He goes to one kingdom where there's a famine and he uh, supplies the people with grain and they all love him. And then he has to go on. He gets into a shipwreck. He is uh, stranded on the The island of Pentapolis, the five cities, and uh, he washes up on shore. Some fishermen find his armor, and they tell him that there's a whole bunch of lords and and knights from all over the region who have come to uh, win the king's daughter, this is a different king, uh, to win her hand in marriage. And so (laughs) Pericles joins in that contest. He wins. He marries the daughter of the king of Pentapolis. Her name is Thaisa. Then they set sail again. There's a terrible storm. Thaisa gives birth to their daughter. Uh, She dies in childbirth. And and Pericles lays her in a beautiful jewel-encrusted coffin and throws her body overboard. And this breaks his heart, but... He kind of commends her to the, to the sea, to Neptune, the god of the sea. Then he leaves his daughter Marina, he names her, Marina, beautiful, uh, of the sea. He leaves her in that kingdom that he had visited earlier, and he provided all the people with grain. And he continues sailing on, because he can't stay in one place too long. Or Creon, this evil king, uh, whose secret he knows, will track him down and kill him. So he leaves Marina there Well, she'll be safe, because no one knows that she is his daughter, and he sails on. Now, uh, Marina, as she grows up, she is uh, being raised by the king and queen of that kingdom, whose, I can't remember their names now. And, uh, but the, the queen has her own daughter. And she becomes quite jealous of Marina, because poor Marina is so beautiful and talented, and everyone loves her, but the queen's daughter is getting overshadowed by her. So the queen arranges to have Marina killed. Ah, (laughs) but before it can happen, Marina gets kidnapped by pirates and taken away to another island in a different city, where she's uh, sold into slavery and made to work in a brothel. Ah, but Marina has uh, vowed her chastity to Diana, and so she has this beautiful divine gift whenever the men come to the brothel she's able to sort of win their hearts by her beautiful words um, you know in (laughs) protection of of the virtue of chastity and she converts them and they leave saying their prayers and the people of the brothel are outraged at this woman that they've taken (laughs) in. i told you this is an outrageous tale okay but it's it's great it's wonderful Okay, so, (laughs) uh, by the time I finish telling you about it, you won't have to read it. Um, Okay, so Pericles goes back um, to visit his daughter, Marina. But he's told by the king and queen of that place that she died tragically uh, by natural causes or in an accident, I suppose. And he sees the monument they've erected to her and he weeps now he's lost his beloved wife and his dear daughter. He still can't go home. He's set adrift on the wild seas. And so he continues sailing on all around the world, making port, various islands and cities. But now he no longer leaves the ship and he won't speak to anyone. He's just lying on his couch, desolate and in mourning, with his hair overgrown and his fingernails growing out. Now, lo and behold, they come to port in the island where... Marina is. She recently met the Lord of the City. He came to the brothel, and uh, little Marina convinced him by her eloquent words and her the beauty of her virtue to be a better man and to live up to his uh, his uh, governorship, his lordship over the city, to be a good leader. And so he leaves, completely converted and astonished at 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 her virtue and her beauty. And so when he hears that this king of, of Tyre has come to port, the Lord goes out to visit him. He hears how desolate he is, and he won't speak to anyone, and so he says, well, there's a young woman in town who uh, I'm sure can get him to speak. Ah, and so now king and daughter are reunited. And this I think T.S. Eliot called this, like, one of the most beautiful scenes in Shakespeare. Honestly, for all the ridiculousness of this play, and you can make sense of it when you realize the first couple acts were written by somebody else, and then Shakespeare kind of steered the ship, if you want, back on course. Um, For all the outrageous circumstances of this play, and the suspension of disbelief that's required, let me tell you, it's all worth it for these final scenes of the reunion between father and daughter. So, so, so you know, so moving, uh, so touching, it's beautifully written. And then, not only that, but then the goddess Diana, who's been protecting Marina's chastity, comes down uh, upon Pericles in a vision and she tells him, You must go to Ephesus, to my temple. And there, at my altar, make a confession of everything that's happened to you. And so Pericles, he's overcome with gratitude at Diana for having protected his daughter and reunited them. So he sets sail to Ephesus. He goes to pray at the temple of Diana. He does as she told him. And as he's relating his story, his tale of woe about the loss of his wife at sea, one of the vestal virgins of the temple gasps and faints. And he says, what's wrong with her? Well, that is his dear wife, Thaisa. See, she wasn't dead at all when they cast her uh, overboard into the storm. She washed up on the shores of Ephesus. And a local healer, uh, they opened the, the coffin and found her. And he realized she wasn't dead at all. And he brought her back to life. But she, being all alone, and fearing the worst for Pericles, she uh, vowed herself to Diana and entered into the temple. And so now the whole family is reunited. And so the play ends um, in a way which is kind of unique (laughs) among Shakespeare's plays. uh, With the reunion of a family, Um, those who were just and patient and virtuous are all rewarded. And uh, those who acted... Out of vice for their own benefit, are all punished, are all destroyed. I mean, uh, the the evil king, I think Creon is his name, and, and the daughter both were killed by a lightning strike early in the play, although Pericles didn't know that. Uh, so they're out of the picture. And then uh, let's see what else. And then well, then of course there's the evil king and queen, uh, who. Uh, the queen, this queen, conspired to have poor Marina killed, and then they lied to Pericles and said that she had died in an accident, and so on. And uh, we hear that Pericles' next stop is going to be their kingdom to uh, give them what's coming to them. And so it's it's very interesting. Uh, this this play, you know, it, it gives us an, an resolution that's like very viscerally satisfying <laughs> where the just who have suffered much uh, get what they deserve and the evil, the evil ones who have uh, inflicted wickedness on our protagonists well, they get their comeuppance too and so, in that, in that way it's a very satisfying narrative and it's interesting to reflect on, you know, and what I love about this play in part is it's just so Greek uh, <laughs> Some of my earliest, um, well, not earliest, earliest, like childhood, but in college my earliest like uh, introduction to classic literature was with uh, the Odyssey and the Aeneid, and many of you probably had the same experience. And so, uh, yeah, these, uh, these prototypical examples of Western classical literature, you can see the same tropes so clearly in Pericles you know, divine intervention coming down, and the force of the fates and the power of the gods, it's all there. And even the tropes of the shipwreck onto various islands, it's kind of like Odysseus's journey home. He, he's uh, gone off to war. He's trying to get back to his family. Pericles, you have him instead fleeing away from home to get away from evil. Along the way, he makes a family and then loses it, and then at the end, regains it. So it's... a uh, it's very, a very Greek story uh, with, a, of course, Shakespeare's own kind of uh, inimitable wit and his own flavor in those final three acts, which is a delicious combination. <laughs> What's so interesting from a maybe theological point of view, if you want, about this play is the interplay between fate and freedom. We talked about this, if you remember, way back in January or February, with Henry the Sixth. Um, poor Henry the Sixth. You know, at one at one time in the play, I think he uh, was counseling one of his lords or a group of them not to act uh, in in one respect or another. Or actually, I, I take that back. I think he was telling them to just do what they want. You know, do whatever you see fit, because providence is controlling the fate of our kingdom, and so whatever course of action that you decide, sort of the hand of of, of providence, right, will steer us in the direction that God wills. And Henry VI was prepared to just completely give himself over to divine providence in that regard. Uh, The uh, the idea of fate as we find it, for example, in the Odyssey, in, in Homer, is a bit different. It's interesting because, of course, in Greek literature you have the gods, and in Pericles also you have the gods, especially Diana intervening in the affairs of mere mortals. But the the actions of the gods uh, in Greek literature are not exactly comparable to the idea, the Christian idea, of divine providence by any means. The Greek gods are Uh, conflicting agents of their own individual wills, you know. They're just just like human actors, but on a a grander scale. And so, you can have human beings who, in a sense, are kind of the pawns of the gods. Um, What would be an example? Um, Okay, perhaps not the Odyssey, but if we think about in the Aeneid, you know, Aeneas, he's, he's fated to go to Rome, but Juno, above all, he she wants to, to throw him off his course she wants Carthage to prosper not Rome Carthage is her favorite city right so she wants to throw Aeneas off his course and do whatever she can to delay him or stop him from reaching the banks of the Tiber and so there's this you know extremely famous um, uh, uh, section I wanted to say scene but uh, section of, of, of the Aeneid when Aeneas lands in Carthage and is with Dido, and they fall in love, and Dido thinks they 're going to be married, but Aeneas eventually has to go it 's his fate to go on to Rome and so Dido throws herself from the tower and kills herself and Carthage falls into ruin without its leader so so, so, so Dido, <laughs> the queen of Carthage, was kind of a, a pawn of the gods there because um, you have you have In Olympus, you have this contest going on between Juno and Venus. Uh, Venus is Aeneas' mother. She wants him to get to Rome, to to found the city of Rome. Juno wants to stop him. So there's a a level higher than the mortal plane where the gods are fighting. And then it's, it's played out in our mortal human reality, almost like pieces on a chessboard in a certain way. Although the human beings still have free agency too. And so it's very interesting. There's this constant interplay between what the gods are doing, what the human beings are doing. There's, uh, there's free will involved. And then that produces this whole notion of fortune, you know, f- uh, fortune in the ancient world. You could take it as as to be like the aggregate of all the free decisions of men and women and gods, the gods, you know All all of them interacting together. It makes up our fortune (laughs) for good or for ill. It's very interesting But then you have the notion of fate and fate is something even Surpassing the power of the gods the ancient Greek or Roman pantheons Uh, fate Fate is like a force of, of nature, like gravity or something, but which, but which even the gods, the divines, are subject to. It's sort of like invisible guardrails <laughs> on the uh, highway of history, if you want. And so, you know, within these guardrails, everyone's kind of fighting against each other and duking it out and trying to get the outcomes they want. But, you know, Aeneas is a great example. His fate is to found the city of Rome, and that can't be stopped. Uh, try as Juno might to stop him from doing it. And even she admits it at a certain point. It's been a long time since I read the Aeneid, but I remember she admits, you know, the best she can hope for is to delay his arrival at the banks of the Tiber. So she tries all the tricks she can, but with the knowledge that ultimately she can't hope to succeed. The fates have decreed that Rome will come into its glory and Carthage will decline and die. And of course, famously, uh, Rome will conquer Carthage and salt the ground so that no city would ever rise there again. So there's these inter, inter, uh, interplaying notions, forces really, of face, uh, face <laughs> of fate, fortune, <laughs> and, uh, and free will all together uh and so yeah so that's that's in ancient literature in pericles uh we can see well we can see the same the same kinds of things because well at least i think so maybe this is uh i'm importing this a little bit because shakespeare doesn't really make this point but i'm just reflecting on it you know with with the the reunion of pericles with thaisa and marina at the end of the play and conversely the punishment of the evildoers who tried everything in their might to destroy, you know, this family <laughs> and their happiness. Um, well, there does seem to be a, a kind of a, a hand of fate in that, doesn't there? Certainly there's the action of Diana, who preserves Marina's chastity and she, she, uh, she uh, protects uh, Thaisa in her temple at Ephesus, She gives her a safe place to remain until Pericles can come and get her. So on, so so Diana is protecting you know the mother and the daughter who uh, are her loyal servants, I suppose um, and and Diana's looking out for Pericles in a certain way as well for reasons we maybe don 't really understand for reasons that are her own, sure, but doesn 't there seem to be a kind of a force even higher than than diana 's <laughs> divine intervention in Pericles and uh, if this weren't you know ancient Greece, we might call it something like karma. <laughs> it's this, uh, but it, it's it's kind of it's kind of a, the force of fate. you know that the, the, these people who do, who have done evil, who by the way I was reflecting on this earlier, they kind of embody the principal vices of human nature, don't they? First, you have Creon, um, who is, who really embodies the virtue of lust and disordered lust, and then. Um, then of course you have this evil king and queen. The queen, especially, is the worst of all, who uh, con- she conspires to have Marina killed. And so in her we see pride and, and envy, as well as wrath. Who's the other villain that I was thinking of? Uh, it's, it's escaping me now. There was another one I was thinking of. Uh, oh well, maybe it'll come back to me. But it, but. Back to the main point I was making about fate. Doesn't it seem like there's a force that that surpasses even Diana's divine interventions throughout the play, that that is that is ensuring that the good will prosper and the wicked will be defeated? I don't know. It seems that way to me, especially in the way that the play just comes to this very neat, comforting, and and and. Uh, What's, uh, what's the word? I want to say cathartic. It's not exactly cathartic, but it's, uh, it's a comfortable ending. You know, it, it's soothing to the soul. Everything turns out well for, for those uh, who were patient, who suffered what they had to, who persisted in love. In Pericles, we see almost the ideal example of a loving husband and father, although he does, he does cast Thaisa overboard in the storm, which is questionable, but I think it makes sense in ancient Greek morality. <laughs> so maybe we'll let that slide. Uh, but you know, he's consumed with mourning for the loss of his wife and his daughter. He's he's not gonna move on. He all he desires is to see them both alive again and to embrace them. And in these beautiful scenes he is given that which his heart most desires. And then in Marina we see the perfect preservation of chastity and and she's living a very, she's living a perfectly virtuous life. Per- per- perfectly, she's exemplary. <laughs> she's converting everyone around her, and uh, and then and then of course Taisa as well. And so, we see these paragons of goodness and of justice and virtue, who are all rewarded. And then those who schemed behind their backs, who did evil, who sought to hide it, who lied and and whatever else to protect their own selfish interests and corrupt depraved pleasures are all punished either divinely by a lightning strike <laughs> or through human agency by uh, Pericles coming to visit justice upon them and so that, that, that gives our hearts uh, peace <laughs> to know that the just are rewarded, the wicked are punished um, and so th- th- it's interesting, it's just, I just think it's a very interesting play very enjoyable the overall notion you get from it is not exactly that of ancient Greek, you know, uh, fortune and fate, that interplay. It's also not exactly Christian providence because, of course, the providence of God is revealed to us ultimately in the cross. Um, Now, you could make a case, I suppose, that, uh, and that you wouldn't want to read a strict allegory into this, but you could make the case that well, Pericles and, and Marina and even Thaisa, they all pass through the crucible of suffering through the various things they have to endure in this life, and then their eventual reunion together into this perfect communion of love, the family, which is consummated in the temple of Diana at Ephesus, that's kind of an image of heaven and the heavenly communion. And so we sail through the storms of this life and maybe get thrown overboard or Captured by pirates, who knows what else. But then, uh, yeah, in in the end, uh, you know, at the sound of the last trumpet, uh, the, the second coming and the final judgment, the Lord separates the sheep from the goats. And the just are rewarded. And the wicked go to everlasting death. You could perhaps... I I don't think it would be stretching it too much to read that into it. Yeah, so maybe I'll I'll take back what I said. Yeah, there is definitely a a very Christian theme of God's providence um, in this play if we read it at that allegorical level. Anyway, I'm probably making too much of all of this, but I did very, very much enjoy Pericles. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Now, to conclude this episode, um, I wanted to share with you a grace from my silent retreat and something the Lord was was revealing to me in prayer, uh, bringing me to a deeper awareness of. And that's this beautiful idea of friendship with God. Uh, Now, hear me out. (laughs) I know, as soon as I say that, it can sound a bit, I don't know, inane, perhaps. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Perhaps it makes some of us think of, uh, you know, uh, billboards or pictures of Jesus winking and... You know, dressed like a surfer guy, like evangelical youth group culture, this kind of stuff. But I think, as the church, we need to reclaim the notion of friendship with God because this is absolutely central to how the Lord reveals himself to us and how, I'm convinced, he desires to live with us. He wants to live with us as friends. And Jesus says as much. He says as much in the Gospel of John, doesn't he? Um, sometime during his, his farewell discourse, uh, he, he says to the disciples, he says, I no longer refer to you as servants, but instead I call you friends, because I have revealed to you everything that the Father has given unto me. So these are powerful words from the Lord, aren't they? And these should, should really convict our hearts, guys. Um, <laughs> The Lord, he he said to his first disciples and to the whole church throughout all time and space, I do not call you servants. I call you friends. Now it's a great honor to be Christ's servants and we we desire that. We want to be his good servants, good and faithful stewards of his gifts. But he wants something more from us. He he does not... His desires for our life are greater than for us to simply be good little pupils and uh, faithful administrators who go out into the world and, you know, take care of the church and and things like that. He he desires intimacy with each and every one of us, and that intimacy by the mystics is often described as, as that between a bride and a bridegroom, a husband and a wife, which is beautiful, beautiful imagery. I love, I love that very much. I've been shaped a lot by that. But I think in some ways, honestly, the image of friendship is actually even better to describe our relationship with God. Now, part of the problem is for our culture, we, we have a very weak notion of friendship. Think of Facebook friends. <laughs> when you think of friends, you think, well, it, that's a concept that means almost nothing these days. You know, a friend can be someone who's hardly more than an acquaintance. But the classical notion of friendship, let me just share this with you, if you don't know it already, many of you, I'm sure, do. For example, in Aquinas, we find this definition of friendship in in St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, A friend is an alter ego. That's another I, another self. A friend is a person for whom My goods are his goods, and and his goods are my goods. And conversely, his evils, his sufferings, are my sufferings, and vice versa, you know. With a friend, everything is held in common. And think of this not just on the level of material possessions, uh, but but think of it primarily and especially on the level of the Spirit, on the level of our whole interior and, and, and emotional life. Friendship also is is characterized uniquely among all human relationships by the existence of what St. Thomas calls mutual benevolence. Mutual benevolence. Benevolence uh, from bene, which is good, uh, and volo, which is will. It basically means goodwill, or to will specifically what is good for the other. So in a friendship, I will what is good for my friend. And he wills what is good for me. And so, uh, uh, friendship uh, in the truest, the fullest sense of the word, especially between Christians, I think just just on the human plane, not talking about God right now. A friendship between Christians uh, is directed at getting each other to heaven, <laughs> ultimately. Because that's the greatest good that we could will for any other person. And so friendship is, is characterized this way by, by, the, by these qualities. Um, yeah, mutual possession of the other's goods and the other's sufferings such that if you're my friend and you're rejoicing, I rejoice with you spontaneously. It makes my heart overflow with happiness to see that you are happy and that the Lord has blessed you. And if you're suffering, then I'm suffering along with you spontaneously. It's not, I'm not trying to force myself to feel empathy. I can't help it. I, if my friend is miserable, I'm in misery, you know. So this mutual sharing and then accompanied with that mutual benevolence, truly willing what is good for one another. Now we can uh, take this further. <laughs> between the life of human relationships where friendship is a great good in fact uh cardinal uh what is his name mueller cardinal gerhard mueller who was the former head of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith under pope benedict and then until very recently under pope francis very distinguished theologian and uh, a brilliant and holy man he said not long ago in an address that he he has found in his life that friendship to be the greatest of life's goods. So human friendship uh, is something not to be discounted. It's not something superficial or transitory. It's something that we we ought to to make uh, one of the foremost priorities of our lives. Cultivating these good human friendships, true friendships, not merely relationships of utility. but relationships of mutual benevolence, mutual love, mutual belonging. Uh, but step, taking even a step further than that now into the, the realm of man's intimacy with God, what does that even mean? How can human beings hope to have any kind of intimacy with God? Uh, God is utterly transcendent, and we're just little specks on a distant planet, Right? <laughs> Well, no. Consider what God himself has revealed to us. Consider what he says his desire is for us, right? If we believe in divine revelation that God has spoken, then our primary source to know about God is what he himself has said to us and has said about himself. And all of scripture is a revelation of this God who pursues us, who seeks us out, And this is why the image of the bridegroom and the bride is powerful because God reveals himself to be that bridegroom pursuing us, humankind, who are his bride, his beloved, the desire of his heart. Think of the Song of Songs. He's going out seeking for his beloved. So God God pursues us. He comes after us. But not only that, he establishes a relationship between us in which friendship becomes possible because this is another principle of friendship from the classical world friendship is based on a certain equality of persons. If two persons are unequal, Aristotle would say, they can't be friends. There can, there can be certainly benevolence, uh, perhaps even mutual benevolence, but there can't be that full and intimate sharing that is really required of friendship. And so. He says that, you know, friends must be, uh, um, yeah, yeah a, certain, a certain equality. All right. So taking that, if we, if, we, if we just grant that on the level of human relationships for a moment, consider God and man. There can be no greater inequality between God and humankind. God is infinitely transcendent than anything in creation. And we human beings are pitifully finite. We are so limited by nature. But what does God do? In the incarnation, he bridges the gap. He becomes one of us. He takes on our nature radically to himself. He becomes a human being. He becomes man. So this God has created in, in the Incarnation an equality between Himself and us. And in the Incarnation, Jesus tells us, he, he, b- both in His words and in His deeds, He shows His incredible benevolence for humankind, culminating in, in ult- and best expressed ultimately in His death on the cross, where He pours out everything He has And everything he is for us and for our salvation, it all comes to a climax there at Calvary. So there's the equality of nature. There's the benevolence on the part of God for us. And as Jesus said in this quote that that I mentioned earlier, St. John's Gospel, I no longer call you servants. I now call you my friends. Why? Because I have shared with you everything I have received from the Father. There it is, you know, the uh, the mutual possession of one another's goods. What what the Father has belongs to Jesus by right because He is the eternal and divine Son of the Father. And He says to His disciples, What I have received, I have given over to you without remainder. I'm giving it all. Now, there's, there's only two things left if you've been tracking <laughs> how our relationship with God, incarnate, could be a friendship. We've got the equality of natures, right? We've got benevolence at least flowing one way from God to us. And we've got mutual possession of goods. So what's, what's lacking? Well, benevolence flowing the other way <laughs> from us to him. And mutual possession of one another's sufferings. But here, this is what the Lord was revealing to me so beautifully this week. At the very end of the Ignatian retreat, the five-day silent retreat, I was praying with this text from the end of St. John's Gospel, where it's in John chapter 20, where Jesus comes and stands in the midst of his disciples. They're barricaded in the upper room for fear of the Jews. They're hopeless. They don't know what to do next. They think the Lord has died and it's all been for nothing. And he comes and stands in the midst of them. He passes through the locked door in his glorified body. He stands in their midst and he says, "'Peace be with you,' and he shows them his wounds. He shows them the marks of the nails in his hands and the hole left by the lance in his most blessed side. Now why does he show them his wounds? This is what I was praying about. And in theology, we learn that, well, Christ displays his wounds here to show that it's really him. It's not a ghost. He's really risen in his physical body. This is a true resurrection. That's why Thomas, who doubts when the Lord returns again, he says, Thomas, come and put your hand here in my side. Come and feel the mark of the nails. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. Because this is the ultimate mark of his credibility. So I, there's a continuity. I am, I am the one who suffered on the cross, and I am the one who now stands before you alive. So there, there's certainly that. But I thought, there's got to be something more. And this is what came to me. The, the Lord is revealing there in this moment, he's already said to them, In the farewell discourse before his crucifixion he's called them friends and he says i've shared with you everything i received from the father but now in displaying to them these wounds he's showing them that he also shares with them with us all of the woundedness of our human nature god in his human nature, in the human nature that he assumed, that he took to himself because of his great desire to be near us, that God also shares in all of our brokenness, in all of our woundedness. God, if you want, bears the marks of his trauma. (laughs) Jesus, who became a man out of his great love for us, suffered and died on the cross for our redemption. And when he rose again, he didn't rise in a perfect, pristine body, but he rose bearing the marks of the nails and of the lance. And there is a deep theological truth in that, which I think we all have to pray with (laughs) <laughs> and, and beg the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to reveal in our hearts to, to each of us what it means that our God came as close to us as that and He remains this close to us even in heaven glorified at the right hand of the Father. Jesus retains the marks of the nails and of the lance. He retains the trauma in His nature which He shares With us. And so (laughs) there's the mutual possession of goods and the mutual possession of sufferings. He suffered with our suffering. He was wounded with our woundedness. Everything we suffer, He suffers. I should say He has suffered (laughs) because we live in time, even though He's in eternity. All of our brokenness, our loneliness, are whatever wounds we might bear in our hearts or in our bodies like he's born in all and because he makes this invitation to us to divine friendship because he is our friend gerard manley hopkins says our first fast best friend right he is our friend, He's sharing our, our suffering. and he, he is offering to share with us his glory, right? His goods that he's received from the Father. That's all on offer. The glory with which he has been glorified by the Father, he wishes to share with us his friends. And it's so beautiful. This all takes place in John 20, and in John 21, the final chapter of St. John's Gospel, where you see some of the apostles have gone out fishing (laughs) with Peter. And uh, Jesus appears to them on the shore, and he calls out across the waters, Friends, have you caught anything? And there it is. It's, It's the Lord's invitation to us. He calls us friends. And he invites us always to to come back from our own sterile pursuits and projects of piety and feeble distractions and the ways in which we squander our lives away to turn back to him and to acknowledge him, to quote that beautiful line from Hopkins again, as our first, fast, best friend. So friends, (laughs) I offer that to you for your own prayer and and reflection. I hope it may be of use to some of you. Um, And that's just a little taste of the incredible, beautiful, and overwhelming, truly, graces which the Lord is giving me during this this month, this month of retreat. Um, I hope to be recording these podcasts again regularly, I have been getting a lot of feedback about the podcast, actually. I'm getting some new listeners. It's pretty cool. Um, uh, I didn't realize this, but when I came back to St. Patrick's, apparently many of my professors are now listening to this podcast, (laughs) which is, is surprising, but it's good. And I've been hearing... Of others it's just it's it's surprising to me I always imagine there's only about two or three people who are listening to this and they're like my mom and uh, (laughs) just a couple of close friends and actually there's a wider audience that I I hadn't realized and so if you're listening thank you thank you for your time and and thank you for your prayers Uh, let's conclude now with a a prayer for one another's intentions Um, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen. Lord, in this moment, um, we give you thanks for all the ways in which you are constantly coming to us, making yourself present to us, and giving yourself to us ceaselessly. As the prophet Isaiah says, truly you are the hidden God, but you are a God who constantly desires to unveil, to reveal yourself, to show us your presence, to make yourself known, to come into our our darkest and our deepest places, and to transform them into realms of light, to dwell with us in the depths of our hearts. And to make them into heavenly mansions. And so God. We ask you to come. Come in your power. Holy and blessed Trinity. Come and make your dwelling with us. In a new way. In a renewed way. Today. We offer you our hearts. To be your home. And we ask that as you come and pitch your tent among us again that each of us would be not only willing and docile and effective servants but loving and beloved friends now and ever and unto the ages of ages Amen My friends, may God bless you may He protect you from all evil And may he bring you to everlasting life. Amen. Talk to you next Friday. And don't forget, if you have Instagram, please feel free to tune in to Sung Vespers uh, at least uh, the next couple of days, 5.30 p.m. Pacific, Instagram Live, Matthew Knight Arena. And uh, perhaps continuing beyond that, but we'll we'll see what the reception is. God bless you all. Have a blessed Friday.